This is Saster's Founders Favorite Series, where you can hear some of the best of the best from Saster speakers. This is where the cloud meets. How should SaaS companies grow during this unique time? Build ROI calculators to better highlight your value, or assessments to help your audience find specific areas to improve, or chatbots to cover common questions. More info at outgrow.co forward slash SaaS. That's outgrow.co forward slash S-A-A-S. Up today, learning from the lows, how MailChimp navigated economic uncertainty with Ben Chestnut, CEO at MailChimp, and Jason Lemkin, CEO at Saster. So this is very exciting to be. Ben, thank you so much for coming and joining, joining thousands of us in cyberspace here. About time you invited me. Yeah, I've been asking Ben over Twitter for years to come. And I think his kids got older. They had sports and spring break. And it's hard to lure someone from Atlanta sometimes. Although you never know. Every once in a while, someone has to have a meeting in the Bay Area or Paris and and they'll come, but I'm, I'm, I'm super really excited. Stars finally align and I can be here with you and your audience. What's your gut on all the office, office stuff? Where, where will we be? Has MailChimp gone, made any formal decisions? And where will you be at the end of next year in an office? Do you have, have you figured that out? I, I really like what Patrick Collison said recently on Twitter. I think that, you know, when things do get back to normal and they will six months after that, you'll look back and, and things will look like nothing ever happened. Uh, yeah. Maybe that's faith blind faith that it'll get back to normal. I have family that was stationed in China for work and they said it got back to normal. It's definitely back to normal. Even in Europe, even like all the entrepreneurs I know in France, it's like 90%, right? Yeah. But um, all right, so no thinking of uh, getting back to normal is sort of how you're thinking as a leader, right? For all of this, I, it makes sense to me. But I'm super excited. I think I've been, I was trying to think last night whether I'm a 3X or 4X MailChimp customer, but it's fun to, there's apps we use every day, right? But there's not that many times you've been a three or four X customer and it's fun to see it. And then MailChimp to me is so interesting for founders here because it took me by surprise how big it was. Maybe it's because you didn't raise 11 rounds of venture capital, which we'll touch into and bang your chest on, on TechCrunch every week with another huge round. Or maybe it's because I wasn't a marketer by training, right? And I just grabbed an app here or there. But MailChimp several times, I think, took all of us surprise, and it's kind of a hero company because of that. So I want to do, like, I want to go back in time a little bit to the very, very beginning, but to me, the most fun, I want to jump around in time, if it's okay, and talk about breakout, right? Mm -hmm. So MailChimp is, I don't know whether you've announced your numbers, you don't have to comment, but around a billion ARR on either side, it's a lot of ARRs, whatever it is, it's very large, but it's a category nominally with a lot of vendors, right? A lot of vendors, tiny, minute, they probably pop up every hour. There's someone with some specialized, at least on email, and we'll talk about getting bigger and into marketing automation. So what was like the 10X feature, whenever it was, a million in revenue, two million, what let MailChimp break out for real from the competition? It had to be freemium. It was uh, 10 years in, 2010, 2009-ish, when we launched our freemium plan, yeah. uh, everything took off. It was this rocket ride right after that. I mean, we went from, I don't know, tens of thousands of users to a million in the first year, and then it doubled and doubled and doubled after that. It was, it's, it's been a crazy rocket ride from there. So that's interesting. So before you went freemium, which was like 2009-ish, is that right? Yeah, Let's talk we about didn't that have a free plan. We didn't even have a free trial before that. You had to pay. 
and you were nominally founded in 2001, right? Yes. So, so but we'll talk about that. So MailChimp wasn't an overnight success story by any stretch of the definition. But you launched, and the first two years before you went freemium, do you remember? It took you two years, because two years is a long time as a founder too, right? How big were you were just, but you still managed to get to a couple million in revenue, but you were not a differentiated tool at that point? It didn't feel like it. I was eating off the McDonald's value meal. I was still eating ramen. That's all I remember of those days. Oh, is before. that true? Even two years yeah. in? <laughs> yeah. I, I, you said, you, I, I think my revenue was in the hundreds of thousands. Oh, wow. Okay. Sure. So freemium, which we have. And so that is interesting because, and then why did it work? Were people, because, you know, freemium alone isn't always a marketing strategy, is it? Um, you have to have traffic. You have to have a denominator. You have to have people searching for you and finding you. So did you even know? And, and to me, MailChimp's interesting because I would think of it as lightly viral, right? Yeah. If you're on the free plan, you see the MailChimp at the bottom. If you take a look at the two field or whatever, you can see that it came or there's URLs, but it's not Zoom viral, right? It's not that real time. So why did it work? Why did freemium work besides that it worked? Did, did you even know? I think it was just a perfect timing. I think there was a crisis going on. It was, it was 2009. We were still reeling from the recession and um, people needed it badly. Uh, small businesses badly needed help. And there we were with the solution, a little bit like Zoom, <laughs> a much smaller scale uh, from yeah. uh, Zoom, but we were there with the right tool at the right time. And what was when you launched it, not to go too much into details, but it's interesting because it, it worked, right? And it worked fast. It worked in 30 days or 60 days. You, the conversions happened, right? Your paid business went up oh, it was immediate. dramatically, quickly, right? Yeah. It was what immediate. Was the we had server outages. People were running around like chickens <laughs> with their heads cut off. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah. I was at that what time, did you do? going to date me, but I was, I was getting flashbacks from like the AOL dial-up uh, issues where no one could dial in, you know, and everyone was complaining about that. I was like, Oh my God, I'm AOL. Uh, nothing, <laughs> nothing would stay alive. It seemed like. Oh man. Yeah. And what was the first, if you remember, what was the first, I hate this word, but what was the first choke or what was your first point where you had to convert to pay that actually worked? Like, did you, did you test anything or what was, what was that insight? When did you know when to throttle the, the free folks back when you first launched? It's a little bit weird with small businesses because sometimes with small businesses, they need like five years to figure it out. You know how it is. Yeah. It's a grind. And so we never really found the one choke. What, what we found was that they just need lots of time to find their way. And everything we tried just really didn't seem to work. Sometimes they just needed to get to, you know, 30% of small businesses die in two years, 50% die in five years. So it's like our sales pipeline, it needs to be five to 10 years. That's, that's the pipeline for small business, it felt like at the time. And so all we really did was give them more time. Um, that was really the only kind of choke point that we had to, to make people, they would, they would shut down their business, but they would keep their free mailchimp account alive. They'd get a job, they'd learn how business actually runs. They'd take that learning, quit, start their business up again, and then- With their list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it was really just once their list grew to about 2,000, that's when they felt like, it was, more, it was less of like a forcing mechanism, mechanism, but more like a celebratory rite of passage. Like if they could get their audience to 2000 and they had to start paying, they felt proud of that. We saw tweets of people saying, I'm finally a paid MailChimp customer. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I had an eye-opening moment years ago when I first met with someone at SurveyMonkey when it was tiny. And they said, 
we don't count churn when we lose a customer because they may come back in their next job or their next thing. We don't actually count that. We don't count that as churn. We wait some, they waited a mammoth amount of time in the early days, probably not today as a public company. How do you think about that sort of churn? Because you didn't really lose that customer, right? Um, even though the revenue paused. Do you have a nuanced view of churn at the very low end of the market? At the very low end of the market? Absolutely. Yeah. And a very yeah. nuanced view of ARPU as well. We kind of went lower ARPU because we want a larger uh, denominator. We want more and more small users than we do very, very big users. And so when you're, when you're the CEO and you're, I would imagine at this point, you've got a few dashboards at MailChimp. <laughs> How do you think about the goals for those? Because I, you know, the smaller the customer, usually the higher the churn, right? That's, that's the law, especially the very small businesses, right? right. The, tiny, the one person shops, it's hard, right? What do you see on your dashboard in terms of churn and how do you how do you incent the team or drive the team to do better in those tiny, tiny customers in terms of churn? Well, what you do is you say, what, what are the industries where our small business customers are really tech savvy and they really push the limits of innovation inside of MailChimp? And we, yeah. we didn't say where the most revenue comes from. We said, where do they push our limits? Um, because that's what drives us is innovating. And then we said, well, it's e-commerce customers. So we really look at just a few slices of our, of our audience and we say, what's going to help them sell more? And those are small customers. They're, they're tiny, but they can make millions of dollars after sending every email campaign. They're making hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars every time they hit send. So we, we focus a little bit more on those and any technology that we get out of serving those sort of high-end, high-innovation, high-impact customers, it trickles down to the small businesses. It's interesting. That's, I guess that's obvious. That e, so e, but even back when you, in 2009, when you converted, e-commerce was sort of your, your North Star customer, uh, was, was folks selling. Um, and then MailChimp is almost like your ERP, isn't it? It's certainly your marketing automation plot, but it's almost more, right? Your list can be everything uh, as a tiny vendor, right? Yeah, I can walk through a restaurant and I can see someone or at a coffee shop, they're using MailChimp. They're using it like a CRM. I see them with their database, the MailChimp audience. Uh, screen up live. It's less of the sending and it's more of the analyzing the data of their customer base for sure. And like just one last question on this and then I let's hit the next one. But so the, the, the step function was going to freemium two years charging everybody the second they give, give me your credit card, no chance for a small business to, to get to know you to see if to see if they want to fall in love, right? Freemium worked. But what was what, what, what was the surprise and delight feature? People back then loved MailChimp, right? And it wasn't just the chimp and the cute ads. And I can't remember because I, I didn't know nothing about email. I just found MailChimp on a Google search. What was your surprise and delight? Why did they love you? Did you have a hero feature? What was, the, what was that special, special product moment or feature? I, I was a real stressed out entrepreneur in those early days. And I was just constantly micromanaging everybody in the office. Like, you got to get this done. Got these goals. I have a Gantt chart of everything. Yep. And I noticed uh, nobody wanted to stay late. They, they just weren't inspired. But one day people were staying late. And I was like, what are you doing? And they would hide their screens every time I looked. And then later I found out what they were doing was they were planting Easter eggs. And that's, that's what got engineers and techies inspired to actually work late. And I said, you know what? As long as we hit, hit our goals, do all the Easter eggs you want. And so people start to infuse personality uh, into the app. They started to build an app that they wanted to use. And it turned out small business uh, customers running a small business is dismal. I've learned uh, over the years and they really need like a ray of sunshine, some sense of hope, uh, some kind of humor in the app. And so I think that was sort of the, that was the thing that kind of was the key unlock for MailChimp in the early days, just personality. Yeah, make it accessible, right? Make it make it fun and, and fun. 
Yeah, we've we've had uh, I've seen news headlines where we take down a billboard of Freddie and people complain. They say that was my only joy in life. We've reduced <laughs> the amount of Freddie in the app because people were saying it's little, it's taking up too much space on mobile and everything. And we've had we get a deluge of complaints. You know, I, I had one small business customer saying he was my only joy. <laughs> 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 that is a sign of something, uh, something special. Yeah, and then this one, this is just one of your billboards. This isn't the one, but MailChimp's always been bootstrapped, which we can dig into, but that, that especially means every dollar is scrutinized. But in the beginning, out of force of necessity, right, yeah. for, for years. And then it becomes part of your mentality. And then I remember one day I was driving up 101 in the Bay Area, and I saw, I think that the, the one on the right, I'm colorblind, the yellow one, right, the classic one, and I'm like, mm-hmm. Wow, MailChimp must be like, how can they afford these? Like, you don't even, I didn't even know what billboards cost back then, right? I shouldn't, I, I know today. They are cheap, but like <laughs> back now. in the day as a founder, I'm like, oh my God, how, but, but, but still you were buying billboards and then now I get it. It's tech, right. your customer, you wanted to expand into tech, right? Yeah. But what did you learn about brand? Because all you had was that chimp on the 101 in the barrier and people, people, this display ad and brand advertising, it's not intuitive to founders right? It is non-intuitive. Um, wh- why did you do that relatively early? And what were your learnings about how to build on your brand? Well, I was always really cheap. Uh, always yeah. experimenting with different kinds of media. I was doing podcasts when they first came out, really just for affordable. On an iPod. <laughs> on an iPod, yeah. Yeah. Hence the name, um, yeah. And so, and, and billboards was just one of the things we always tinkered with. We have a culture of tinkering and, and experimentation at MailChimp. And yeah. uh, the, the thing about billboards and branding is one thing is I always wanted something tangible with our brand. I, everyone interacts digitally, but you need something to feel. So I always have like mailchimp toys, something that I want on your desk that you can feel or see that makes your brand real when you can see it out in the real world, like you saw it in your car on Highway 101. And then um, with the billboards, I, I had a competitor. We, we would listen to their analyst calls every quarter. And they said that they opened up a San Francisco office and that was going to really stick it to us because they could have a physical (laughs) office right there in the heart of Silicon Valley and they would have everybody come to their office. And I told my team, you know what, why don't you set up a billboard across the street from their office? So that was sort Uh of that might have been the one I saw. Right. (laughs) Thankfully, thankfully, my team saw that that was kind of a jerk move. And so they said, we like the idea of billboards. We won't do that we're going to put them up and somebody put one up at in, across from this building. I never heard of called Moscone. <laughs> and I'd never heard of it at the time. And it, they, they did it right before Apple's WWDC. And then right after that was Google IO. And we, it just went viral. People took pictures of that mysterious monkey posted it to this new thing called Instagram. And it just kind of went viral from there. So, wow. I mean, I guess the lesson is care about your brand. Uh, try to get it physical, not just digital only when you can afford it. Uh, always be tinkering. And, um, you know, if, if you're always tinkering, then when they really become available, like CBS and all the people that do outdoor, once they saw us buy a couple, then they just went nuts and said, we've got all these other properties. How about the highway? How about this? How about? And then, then it just kind of grew from there. And then related to this, like, Brand. Brand is really, it's a funny thing. It creeps up on us as founders, doesn't it? Because we kind of make fun of it in the early days. We think, at least we used to, we think that's a Pepsi thing, a John Scully thing. Sure, brand yeah. is, we, the last thing you want to do in the early days is hire a marketer that just wants to work on your brand. And then you realize they were right. Like, like MailChimp has this brand. And when does that work? How do you know when to invest in brand versus leads versus the other thing? And how do you, how do you protect your brand today? Like, because it's always, it's always at risk, right? We, we'll talk a little bit maybe more about doom that we talked about the other day, right? But uh, how, what have you learned about brand and when does it matter? 
it matters always. It's, it's what I was a, a, a designer at heart. So brand meant a lot to me from the, from the early get go. I mean, I started wanting to build a global brand, so I might be the wrong person to ask about that. Well, maybe you're the I right wanted person. a brand from day one. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Um, but the thing is like, it makes people, uh, loyal. They make, it makes people love. I mean, you sh- I don't, I've always said, I don't shoot for loyalty. I shoot for love. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't want people to just blindly use my product. I want them to use it out of its merit, but you do want people to kind of just love that brand. And it's, it's, it's actually the most economical marketing you do because it, it goes viral that way. People tell their friends about it and that's the cheapest marketing, uh, that you could pay for. Yeah, for sure. So this slide you guys put together, who am yeah. I seeing here? What's going on in this slide? Uh, can you, so that's me and my co-founder. Uh, so that's my mother. She ran a oh. hair salon in the kitchen. I couldn't get an action shot of her actually doing her, her work. Uh, that's just Thanksgiving. <laughs> that's just Thanksgiving. And uh, over on the right, that's uh, my co-founder, Dan. He's the tall one. Uh, and that's in his father's bakery. So we both had entrepreneurial families and we both uh, grew up in the kitchen watching their businesses uh, grow and then ultimately fail. Uh, and that's what drives us today. We really want to empower small businesses. That's the DNA of MailChimp um, so that they don't uh, fail like our, our parents did. Yeah, I hear. And they failed while you were, you saw them fail. You see them and you can see that it's not just a business that fails. It's a person, it's a family and the effects yeah. linger for generations. Yeah, when we were chatting before this, this I, I heard some of that linger in your thinking, right? There's, there is this, conservatism is the wrong word, but there's this fear of doom that we chatted about. Maybe it tacks back to your childhood. <laughs> it's interesting that it inspired you to be an entrepreneur, right? Because these feelings linger with us, don't they? They really do. And they also kind of yeah. tell you that doom and despair might be the norm. So you just have to kind of keep <laughs> marching. Uh, you know, everyone's talking about 2020 is a dumpster fire, and it really is. And sometimes I ask people, what if it's always been a dumpster fire? We're just now noticing it. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, yeah, it's entrepreneurialism is about one setback after another, isn't it? Yeah, and you told me that when we were chatting before, which which floored me a little bit, that even at Mailchimp scale, you have doom thoughts. You worry that the company could could fail, right? I felt, I feel like my my SaaS learning is that after ten million. And or so in revenue, you can go into a terminal decline, right? But it could take a decade, right? I mean, let's look at Oracle and companies. Like, even if Oracle never releases a new product, we want it to be 2050 before those last Oracle servers are shut down um, yeah, yeah. in some data center. But you have doom fear still today. Today, you still have doom fear. Yeah, I, I told somebody that, you know, I, I still feel this way. We could die tomorrow. We could die tomorrow. And then somebody told me, no, you really can't. It, most likely, the plane won't crash like this. The plane will just glide to a slow, kind of embarrassing descent. And I just thought, yeah. well, it's worse than, than crashing. <laughs> so, it's worse. Yeah, yeah, I do have that. I, that. That is the attitude that I think is necessary. I mean, was it, isn't there a book about that? Only the paranoid survive or something along those lines? There is. What that means, like, I think we all take away slightly different meaning from that, from that title, right? Uh, that might have been more about competition killing you than doom, right? And, uh, <laughs> it is, it's funny that the Intel, you know, when we were growing up, I thought hardware was the hard one and software was the easy one, but it's backwards. These hardware cycle, look at phones, hardware, hardware phone, but the cycles are so fast, but MailChimp will last 30 years at this point. If you don't totally screw it up, Ben, uh, software is harder than hardware, which doesn't even still make sense to me, but, uh, hardware is ephemeral, right? But software, if you do it right, look at the Decacorns, right? Yeah. Look at these companies. If you do software, right it'll last 40, 50 years. And 
If I was running MailChimp, like I, I'm jealous. I'm, I'm not literally mean jealous, but it's up to you, right? It's your job now to build a 50 plus year platform. And we're not going to have that AOL experience, right? If we do it right. That's right. It's like S-curves. The first S-curve is like the fastest and the tallest. And then it's like lots of lots of subsequent smaller, harder S-curves. I look at some of those software companies that have lasted over the years and it's like constant reinvention is what I see in their numbers, right? Yeah. And, and there are which, which phase, I, I wanted to do a little bit more in the early stage for one at a time, but which, tell me about the phases of MailChimp because today we're sort of this, we're even more than a marketing automation platform, right? We're, MailChimp's like a marketing platform. We've got social and images and timing and AI and ML and all of these things. But MailChimp stayed email only for a long time, didn't it? Are we in the second phase of MailChimp or the third? And what, what did you learn? What, what were those evolutions? And why did they take a while versus a, a year? Well, I, I always felt like, uh, you know, I read Crossing the Chasm a long time ago by Jeffrey Moore. And he said that a lot of people want to cross that chasm. It's important to cross it, but they cross it yeah. too soon. And I said, oh, okay, I'll just dwell a little bit longer. Uh, and I think that that's kind of the advice. Uh, if you read between the lines, it's like really master what you do. And so I took that seriously and I mastered email. And then it wasn't until I started talking to customers out in the Midwest, you know, what is it that MailChimp's brand means to you? And they told me it's marketing. It's not just email, get out of email, expand. Uh, yeah. and, and that was when I was inspired by that. It wasn't like a strategic, like a genius strategic decision that I made. It was talking to customers <laughs> and they said, For, you know, dear God, expand, sprinkle that MailChimp magic on other marketing channels. So that's kind of what took us so long. And so I, I tell my employees, we're in act two of the business. Act one was great. It took us really far. It's not yeah. going to be enough. We, we've got to evolve from here. Yeah. So I didn't, you're not in act three. I didn't miss one, right? Act one no, was no. email, <laughs> nailing it. Probably lasted 15 years though, act one, right? Some part, better part of 15 years, right? Uh, depending on how you count, depending on when you start, right? We'll still be milking act one for a long time until act two yeah. makes up, you know, what, 30, at least 30% of our revenue is my philosophy. And then, then really act two has taken hold. And is, do you, because I, I want to ask about proportionality, right? How big that, that those product extensions need to be. Do you think of that as just a, the same customer and maybe more revenue from the time? Or do you think of this as, accessing different customers and that has to be big because MailChimp's already big, right? You can't add something that adds 2% to your revenue because it doesn't move the needle, does it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's maybe not so much a different customer, maybe a little bit like the whole world is skewing more to e-commerce. So in, in a sense, it is more uh, of a little bit of a different customer, but, but the product is more sophisticated and it's going to require different uh, amounts of sales. And so we're yeah. looking into that, like how do we broaden a self-serve app that just quickly sells like one point solution called email. That's kind of easy, but when you start to sell multiple channels across a whole platform, that's gonna take more assistance and handholding. So yeah, it's gonna take an evolution. It will, right? Yeah. I'm I've never talked to a, a sales rep, but did MailChimp have any salespeople today? Did it have any salespeople two years ago? Not two years ago, no. Now, we always have now small you... little teams that, that dabble a little bit, but uh, you know, we just hired a chief customer officer uh, starting <laughs> in a couple of weeks, so yeah, change is afoot. <laughs> Change. There may be there may be a few hundred, a few hundred sales reps at Mailchimp next year. Uh, <laughs> that'll be an interesting journey, right there, won't it? Everything changes. Yeah. Well, it's cool. Well, Ben, this was incredible. Is there anything anything I missed that you wanted to hit or chat about at the very end? No. I hope all the entrepreneurs out there, uh, you know, see us and and recognize we, we are transitioning from Act One to Act Two. So, uh, <laughs> so watch us. <laughs> I'm excited. Let's continue the discussion about Act 2. I think this is one of the great case studies, right? MailChimp, the, the learning the freemium, doing it bootstrapped, and then taking, depending on how we count, 
12 years to go to act two, right? Whether we start in 2007, 2009, 2001, it's a slow, it's a slow roll to act two, right? It's a slow roll to I get mean, to 10 I billion mean, in you revenue. You can characterize it as slow. You can characterize me like making lots of money. Deliberate. Now, yeah, lots of, lots of money. Yeah. So <laughs> I want, I want to, I want to track the next 10 years uh, for fun as a, as a fan and as a case study, right? It's going to be a fun case study to see how yeah. MailChimp evolves on these two vectors. So we will keep pestering you, Ben, to share your learnings over the next 10 years uh, on, on phase two. So thank you again for the time. This has, been, uh, this has been tremendous and thanks to everyone for tuning in. Looking to build trust and better engage your audience online? Outgrow helps SaaS companies like Adobe, Tableau, and Salesforce create more powerful personalized content like ROI calculators, assessments, chatbots, and quizzes to grow your business. Check out outgrow.co forward slash SAS. That's outgrow.co forward slash S-A-A-S.